Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is a very special guest. We're going to delve into so many different topics, but this particular gentleman is the all-time scoring leader for Vanderbilt Basketball 2007-2008 SEC Player of the Year. He was drafted by the Dallas Mavericks. He's played all over the world, and he is now the CEO of Fostering Health Solutions and the author of What Hurt Didn't Hinder. Ladies and gentlemen, Shane Foster. Shane, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, come here on, on my podcast and share your story. You know, one of the things I remember is you, you I'm a Mississippi State Bulldog, and you, you had to make that really difficult three-pointer <laughs> and and beat us. I was When I was at the game, which was – I usually come to – every time Mississippi State comes here to play – I come and then I've I've been I would go back all the time to state, but I'm like, oh, don't let him have the ball was the only thing that I was because you killed us at yet forty two that night. But when you think about growing up as a kid and the dreams that you had when you were ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old, and then they obviously manifested themselves into getting a, a basketball scholarship at a great university like Vanderbilt. How much did visualization and it was like the law of attraction? play a role in your life as it pertained to the things that you dreamed about when you were a kid to ultimately where you ended up playing ba- playing basketball? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. You know, you you have to be able to see it to believe it. Mm-hmm. 
And that doesn't always mean you have to physically see it, but you've got to be able to manifest it in a dream, in some type of visual, um, to really believe in yourself enough to go and be able to produce it. And for me, it was, you know, I used to watch Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, those Bulls, um, almost religiously. Yeah. If they were on TV, I was watching it. And I'd go outside and kind of mimic what I saw them doing. And, you know, that that kind of created a love for the game of basketball. Um, but also it, it gave me the confidence that I could go out and do some of those things myself. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I was in college, before before the game, when I would take a nap and be preparing and praying, I'd also be watching video of great players, Michael Jordan, Ray Allen, uh, guys that, that really um, stuck out to me, uh, Rip Hamilton, um, that kind of matched my game yeah. and what I was trying to accomplish on the floor. And I'd envision myself doing those things, um, sometimes going out on the court even without a basketball you know, and just just walking through motions and making certain moves, um, envisioning a defender in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of things um, that give you a mental advantage, so that when you get into a game situation and a defender is there and there's a scouting report against you, and the whole team has the scheme trying to stop you, your mind has already seen it be successful, right? And so in the moment, you don't have to focus as much on doing what you've already done, you can just allow yourself to react and allow your mind to now be creative because you're not having to think about what the specific action is. So I think it it plays a pretty big part. Yeah, it's interesting, the brain, right? You know, there's no difference in your brain between an imagined event and the real event happening. Mm -hmm. So if you've already seen it, it's already happened. Mm -hmm. And now you can just click repeat. And that's a really powerful mechanism. Obviously, in my sport, golf, visualization plays a huge role in it because we're not reacting to anything. You know, in, in basketball, you're reacting to the defender, where the ball's going, and the movement within the, the 10 players that are on the floor. Mm-hmm. Golf, man, that ball's just sitting there like, hit me. You got you to gotta make things happen. And to do that, a lot of that has to <clears throat> come visualizing first. And I've always found that golf is a more immediate visualization. Like, you're visualizing it about to play. But when I played basketball, baseball, and the other team sports, I'd spend more time the night before, like when I was getting ready to go to bed, visualizing what I wanted to happen more so than I did in golf where I actually do a lot more visualization as I'm getting ready to hit the shot. So they're a little bit different. Uh, And I think it has a lot to do with reactive sports versus responsive sports. But nevertheless, I always like to – when I get a a great athlete in here, I I always want to hear – them tell me how much mental preparation they put in before the physical gifts that they had took off because it all starts in the mind. But I always like to figure out how far into the mind did you go to be as as good as you were? Well, I was blessed and and fortunate, more fortunate than many to have Kevin Stallings as my coach, Um, one who is one of the best basketball minds that there is. Mm -hmm. And so I learned so much from him and from our coaching staff that 
by the time I got on the basketball court, there was nothing that surprised me. Yeah. I knew how to beat every defense. I knew how to beat every way that somebody was going to defend me or our team. And then it was just a matter of going out and executing. Now, whether or not you made shots, that was dependent on how much work you put in and you know how much time you spend in the gym shooting that shot, getting repetition and those kind of things. Um, and and then obviously you know having the the courage to take difficult shots when you know you were guarded or covered or what have you. But, you know, I spent a lot of time watching film. Mm -hmm. I spent hours watching film, not only of myself, um, correcting my own mistakes. I think that's a large part of it, too. It's one thing to be able to sit with a coach and have them point out the different things. But you really become a great player when you're able to be your own coach Mm -hmm. and criticize your own game and your own body and aneurysms and, you know, how you move on the court um, and, and being critical of those small details for yourself yeah. right um, when you're able to do that then it can really take your game to a whole nother level um, because you become a student of the game you know and you know as I think back to my my senior year in college for example you know by that time I had watched so much film and had seen so much of myself and our opponents to where a large part of the season was really easy yeah. You know, and I'd be out there on the court and I'd see things happening before they ever happened. So I knew how to react and how to respond. And the game just became that much more fun because I didn't have to think about it as much. And I wasn't as surprised when things happen. You know, mm-hmm. in basketball, it's a very fast paced game. So if something happens that, that you're not prepared for or that you're seeing for the first time, then whenever you react to it, you're probably slow, which means it's going to lead to a turnover or a missed shot unnecessarily. Yeah. Well, when you've prepared yourself mentally and you know the game to that level and you've prepared your body to be able to go out on the floor and, and, and execute, then in the moment, not only are you not surprised, but you're able to react before it happens and put yourself in the best case scenario for you to be successful. Now you just got to focus on the shot. I don't have to think about the defense. Yeah. I know where the defense is. I know how they're guarding me. You know, I would take the first two or three possessions solely just to see how are you going to guard me? What's your defensive plan? And then once I understand what you're trying to do for the rest of the game, I know how to set up early on what I want to do later on in the game. Yeah. Right. And so that's the game in between the game that you get to when you master the mental part of it first. Mm. I, w- I think it's, it's fascinating because I would imagine those great gifts that Stallings and all the coaches that provided you while you were g- growing up in high school and into college, those same tenacity pieces and preparation pieces have ha- had to carry over into the business sector for you as well. Talk to me about two or three things that you learned on the court that you immediately employed in your in your business scenarios that reaped rewards for you instantly and let you know that everything that you were taught on the court is actually just what it takes to be great at anything. Well, I think the first thing was about capacity, having the capacity to do more than what is expected Mm -hmm. going above and beyond right like everybody doesn't have capacity whether it's mental or physical to go out and really produce at a high level that exceeds people's expectations right and and i got that from basketball because i needed to prepare my body if i wanted to average 20 a game then i needed to be in the best shape of my entire life to where i was capable of averaging 30 Mm -hmm. right 
and so when you prepare to that degree then you're doing you're doing extra sprints right you're 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 getting an ice tub and taking care of your body you're watching more film you're taking more jump shots you're 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 working on your ball handling um, above and beyond what is required by the coach Mm -hmm. and that increases your capacity so that in any given moment you're prepared for whatever is thrown at you and you can be thinking and use your mental power to then exceed the expectation because your baseline is to meet the expectation. Yeah. What I'm focused on is exceeding the expectation. And the same applies in the business world. Um, I think attention to detail is the next thing that that is that is critical where you're able to really really hone in on those little small things that create sustainability mm-hmm. you know it's one thing to produce a product or or to you know provide a service but it's the small details that get you asked to come back it's the small details that that people can count on that you can be consistent with um, that allow people to make referrals for you um, and that's proven to be really really valuable for me as I run a, a consulting company that I've never had to advertise for it's a hundred percent word of mouth and I have clients literally all across the country um, and I think it has a large part to do with number one when I show up I exceed expectations and two I take care of the small details where we're, we're, we're not going to, we're not missing appointments, we're not rescheduling stuff, we're not, you know, in terms of things being spelled correctly and 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 making sure contracts are right or whatever whatever it is. Even though it's a small detail, you know, if I'm showing up to give a presentation and for whatever reason I'm not able to use a PowerPoint, well, I've thought through what do I go to next. Right. And whether I'm able to show a PowerPoint, a video or not, it doesn't change the flow of my presentation. And most importantly, I know how to pivot in a way that ensures the impact is the same regardless. Well, it takes attention to detail to be able to do that. Right. Um, And so those are some of the things that come to mind. And then I think lastly is really getting to a place where you can appreciate and celebrate diversity. I think that's really, really important. I think everybody is diverse. Mm-hmm. Everybody is unique. No, no two people are the exact same. Correct. Right? But oftentimes, when we think about diversity, we, we stop at black and white. We stop at race and maybe gender. Mm-hmm. Right? But there's diversity in thought and accessibility in experiences, um, in mindset, um, and, and, and physique. I mean, they, we, we bring all kinds of differences to the table. And what I learned through sport is that every single person is valuable. And everything that they bring to the table could be valuable if you see it as such. Yeah. Right? But if you don't see it as something that could be valuable, then you end up um, taking for granted the impact that could happen. And in sport, like I think back to the best teams that I played on, we won a lot of games and sometimes overachieve 
because every single person on our team reached their peak performance level, whatever that was. Yeah. Right. I think back to guys like Alan Metcalf, who didn't average a whole bunch of points for us, but he was a stretch big that could knock down a shot if he was open. He was a big body. He could rebound and finish, but he lacked a lot of confidence. And so I took it upon myself to make sure that I was giving him confidence every single day. I was loving on him every single day, encouraging him, right? And so yeah. when he gets into the game situation, he's able to be his best self in the game, and we're able to get whatever value we can get out of Alan Metcalf. Yeah. Well, him being at his best allows everybody else to function at a level that they don't have to get outside of their comfort zone. Yeah. Right. It's when you have individuals who are outside of what they do that now you get into trouble because that's not what they do. Correct. Right. And so when you're able to truly appreciate and celebrate the uniquenesses that everybody brings to the table, then you can find unique ways to utilize all of those skills in a way that is most productive and and creates the greatest outcome. And I think that's something that has really helped me in business as well. Wow, that's powerful stuff right there. What's fascinating to me as I listen to you speak, and you speak it with such passion, it's, it's infectious and I love it. I would imagine that you owe a lot of credit because we always end up doing things for something bigger than ourselves, right? And I would imagine that your faith in your family was the like the groundwork, the, the cornerstones of your of your growth to be able to think like that, learn like that, and be able to be coached like that require a, a different level of understanding that you generally comes from a great understanding through your faith in your family. Talk to me about those two things and how they played a huge role in putting you in this place. Well, it's, it's big for me. It's, it's probably the most important thing to me. Um, I spent the first six years of my life living with my grandparents and they had me in church every single day. I didn't want to be in church every day, mm-hmm. <laughs> but my grandfather was a deacon. My grandmother was a missionary. My great uncle was the pastor. My aunts and my mom were all in the choir. So when the doors of the church opened, we were there. Yep. And it was important for them to surround me with a village of, of people who had an invested interest in who I would become. Yeah. Um, it was so, so amazing to be in that environment and to see men particularly showing up very differently than we typically show up in the world. And, and, and what I mean by that is in a posture of worship, in a posture of, of prayer, in a posture of surrender, mm-hmm. that doesn't match the hyper-masculine, the hyper-masculinity that you see out in the world. Mm-hmm whether it's in sport, business, or relationships, what have you, is drastically different. And so what that allowed me to see was balance, that, that, that I can be someone who is like my grandfather who built homes and, and businesses and, and structures all across the city of New Orleans and Slidell, Louisiana, and all over Mississippi. You can find his work in the, in the makeup of those cities and buildings. Hmm. And he was great at it, phenomenal at it. But then he'd be in church worshiping, leading the prayer, singing songs, serving other people, mm-hmm. right? So it allowed me to see balance, and it was so important. Um, but also it gave me the confidence that, that in my faith, that my faith can be stronger than any peer pressure that exists outside, 
right? Because as you as you as you leave home, as you leave church, you get out into the world. You know, everybody's not singing kumbaya. That's right. Right. Everybody don't know amazing grace, and everybody don't want to hear about God. Right. Correct. And to each their own. But for me, it was important to have, you know, something that I could believe in that mattered, that was tangible. Um, and and spend, I spent one summer um, just reading the whole Bible, right, and really engaging in the stories. And what I learned through that experience was that everybody, everybody that is represented in the Bible matches people that exist today. Right, and everything it's it's all relevant, mm-hmm. and but it doesn't match the perfect perfect model that we try to the perfect persona that we try to put on for people. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a great documentary on Netflix it's called "The Mask You Live In." It talks about how we all wear a mask in all these different spaces that sure. we're in because of the need to be accepted and to fit in. So we end up being all these different versions of ourselves so that we can fit in. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so what the, what ends up happening is the same stories that were in the Bible, you see playing out with people. You look at David and, and Bathsheba, you see people in all kinds of messed up relationships. You see people who are lusting and, and get in a situation they shouldn't have been in in the first place. And then they retaliate the same way David did when he got caught. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you see them go through periods of time <clears throat> in their life where, you know, it seems like God is taking their hand off of them. You know, where things were going great and then all of a sudden they have four or five months or even years where things just don't click, right? Same thing that happened in the Bible, right? But it all comes back to the fact that grace is accessible for us all if we'll be humble enough to surrender, Yeah. right? And so faith has always been incredibly, incredibly important to me, having a savior, having, you know, somebody who, who can you know, really meet me where I am. And it's not about perfection, but it is about treating people with dignity and respect. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I'm, 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 I'm one of those individuals where I'm not so religious that I'm not relevant. Yeah. You know, and, and, and sometimes that can be a problem where we can, we can, you know, spout out scriptures and, 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 you know, sing gospel songs all day long, but we can't relate to people. Because we're too holy, yeah, <laughs> right, and and, and I, don't, I don't believe that that's how you know we're supposed to be either. So I, I, I you know, I, I said it before, I say it again. For me, balance is incredibly important, um, and, and and that's some of the things that I've learned through through my faith as well. Um, and I'll say this: my my grandparents thought it was important for me to get to Mississippi to meet all of my family. I have a huge, huge family. My grandma said that it was important for you to learn to love your family because if you can learn to love your family as crazy as some of our folks are Mm -hmm. um, with all of the diversities that exist, then you can learn to love other people too. Mm. If we're honest about it, everybody in our family is not invited to our house, right? We got some people that we're just like, you know what? I can love you from a distance. Yeah. Right. And the same is true with people in the world. And I don't have to judge you. I don't have to hate you. None of that. We can just agree to disagree. And we can love each other from a distance. Yeah. You know? And, and I'm so grateful for for those lessons. Man. 
you know, from from an early age, because now in in a world that is so racially charged and there's so much um, divisiveness that's happening, um, politics are, are completely insane. Yeah. And, and you can get you can get into a riff of just feeling defeated mm-hmm. and 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 you know beginning to be judgmental against people you know but through my faith i realized that i can love you from a distance we don't have to agree on everything yeah right and i don't have to be upset at you because you don't agree with how i believe or vice versa and and we don't have to tear each other apart right we can just agree to disagree and i can love you from a distance mm-hmm. and that's okay yeah it's so fascinating. Like to me, the Bible is so interesting. It's the first book, and it's also the first library because the Bible is a, a collection of books. And it's not so much that it's the truth, is that it provides us the pathway to all truth, which is even more profound than if it was just the truths, right? So to me, I, I've... When I was at Mississippi State, I took a, a religion class, and we studied all the religions, the similarities and the dissimilarities. I did too of of them all, which yeah. I found was very fascinating. And I just remember the the teacher saying it just like that. He said, "This is the this book right here. It's the very first book, but it's also the very first library." And I was like, "Wow, that's pretty profound." And then it just be, it doesn't mean that it holds all the truth. It just shows you the gateway to all the truths. That's what makes it even more powerful than if it was just true. And I was like, man, I, I wrote that down. I'll never forget it. Because it's it's like it's a story that ne- it never gets old. Because it, no matter how old that story is, it's happening right in front of your face right now. And the lesson's there. And it's, it's harrowingly scary that the humans, although the more we change, the more we say the same, the exact same reactions are occurring 2021 as they did, you know, before Christ or just barely after. You know, it's it's just staggering how accurate it maintains itself. Mm-hmm. It's timeless. It is. And there aren't many things in life that are timeless. And I think that that's why, you know, generally speaking, Christianity is the most popular and is long living because of the text that it's it's brought from yeah yeah you know I, I, I couldn't agree more and you know it's it's always been fascinating to me um how relevant the bible can be when you read it right how uniquely you can just sit down and, and open the bible and read a random story but it be applicable to your life today mm-hmm. and you know it's it's always been that for me, and I'm so grateful to have been receptive mm-hmm. to it that, like you said, it's not about whether or not what happened was true. It is about how you find yourself and find your way through it, right? Yep. Because ultimately, if you're, not, if you're not growing, right, if you're not learning, if you're not taking the things that you're experiencing and figuring out how it applies to your life, your relationships, your work, your business, then what are we doing? That's right. What, what is the point? What is the purpose? If you're not right? growing, you're dying or killing. Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. And so I, I, I think I think the Bible can be many things, um, but the one thing it is not 
is divisive. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's the people who take certain things and make it divisive. We talk about this a lot when it comes to domestic violence, where people will literally take scripture and use it in a way that allows them in their mind to make violence acceptable. Wow. And it's just like, you you literally completely disregarded context, completely disregarded the lesson. But the Bible even talks about that, how for some people, it's just going to fall on rocks. For some people, it's going to fall on good ground. For some people, it's going to fall on thorns. Everybody's not going to understand. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. Everybody's not going to understand. And a lot of it is because we don't want to. Because it's not advantageous to us in the moment. It don't make us feel good. It's conflicting. But on the other side of discomfort, you find amazing, amazing things, you know, but we got to want it. We got to want to be better. We got to want to be better for ourselves. We got to want to be better for our families. You know, and at the end of the day, I tell people all the time, whether, whether you apply every principle in the Bible or not, what's most important is how you live your life. Yeah. Right. Like there, there's, we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be some people there and we're going to be like, wow, I didn't know you was going to make it. And there's going to be some people who you thought was going to be there and are not going to be there. That's right. Because ultimately it's about how we treat each other, how we show up in the world. Um, that's what really matters. So true. Well, you're, you're actively involved in something that really means a lot to me, which is domestic violence. Now, I'm, I'm on all sides of domestic violence. You specifically deal with the 92 percentile, which is against women and, and girls, right? And, I, I, and obviously, a v- ridiculous amount is heavy on m- the males are always more violent historically, and the women are the brunt of it. I can't imagine, one, the, just the horrible stories that you see, but the uplifting and cup-filling feeling that you get from being able to assist, help, and guide people who have been abused, which is really as awful as it gets from generally, most of the time, it's from a loved one, somebody that's supposed to be loving you, that's doing more damage than you can fathom. Talk to us about what it means to you and, and a story or two that let you that let you know that you're on a mission that's way bigger than basketball or anything that that people might know you for before we did this podcast. You know, I've been fortunate to accomplish a lot of things on the basketball floor. Things that have gotten me accolade. Um, I walk around cities across our country. People recognize me, call me by my name and ask for autographs and pictures and what have you. And that's amazing. But the one thing that made me know that I was making a difference is when I'm in Nashville, just got off a plane, going to get my bags and somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you're Shane Foster. I say, yeah. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. It matters. I was a victim. And I'm happy to say I'm a survivor. But I know personally that the work you're doing is making a difference. When I hear men who will come up and tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, 
I appreciate you because you made it acceptable for me to talk about this. Men who have abused people in their lives, but they don't want their kids to go down that same path because mm-hmm. they know it's wrong. But they also don't know how to talk to them about it. And they say, thank you because you're making a difference in my household. People who I've, I've never even seen before in person. Yeah but they've heard me speak somewhere or their kids are a part of our clubs that we have here in Nashville or, or in other cities around the country. Um, it, it matters. Um, and a large part of our work is giving people permission to show up differently. Mm. So much of domestic violence is learned behavior. 100%. And, and, yeah. and you know, the statistics say that boys who witness abuse are more than twice as likely to repeat the behavior. Girls who witness abuse are more than twice as likely to be victims. And oh, wow. You hit the nail on the head when you said that, you know, we're creatures of habit. You know, we, we, we do what we've seen. And for the history of our country, men have been primarily violent, which means young boys have all seen violence happening. And so it's been so normalized that it doesn't come across as wrong. Thus, the cycle continues. Yeah. And so being able to give permission to men and boys to show up differently um, has been, you know, not only one of the joys of my life, but it's also heavy because you know that there aren't enough shelters. Right. Our shelters at the YWCA of Nashville, Middle Tennessee stays full. Um, You know, there's not enough um, space on hotlines. Especially during the pandemic, they're overwhelmed. I can only right? imagine. And the most dangerous time in a person's life is when they try to leave an abusive relationship. And everybody's just saying, well, if you don't like the relationship, then you should just leave. It's literally the most dangerous time in their lives. And every single day in our country, three women are being killed by an intimate partner. And Tennessee is in the top 10 every single year for men killing women. Wow. Right. This is nothing new. This has been happening. But the other part of it is we got to give people permission to talk about this stuff. Because in in so many households and in communities, you know, it's always been what happens in our house stays in our house. We sweep things under the rug. We're chasing perfection or at least the perception of perfection. Yeah. Right. But the cycle continues when we don't talk about it. And today you have somebody who they're not as interested in talking about it or or not as interested in hearing about it because they feel like they're disconnected from it. It doesn't happen to them. But tomorrow it could be somebody you love. And that's why it's so important that all of us speak up, that all of us begin to normalize talking about these issues so that ultimately we can get to a place where those numbers change. Yeah, We have to get to a place where those numbers change. Our family, our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues are all at stake because we we won't talk about it. Hmm. And then we got to then we got to teach people how to hold ourselves and hold others accountable. Right. Whether it's through a faith context or it's just through accountability, we got to hold each other accountable. You know, mm-hmm. this idea of, of certain jokes on the golf course or certain jokes in a locker room or in the break room or, or just funny is no big deal. No, it is a big deal because when we crack those jokes, we make it acceptable for somebody to go home and treat people they love and care about as if they're less than. Because mm-hmm. really what it's about, it's about value and it's about power and control. 
So if we normalize you having control over another person, you dehumanizing another person, you belittling another person, if that's normal, then that turns into action somewhere, yep. which is where the physical manifestation of that violence comes from. So you got people who will say, you know, I'm not abusive. Well, maybe you, you may not be physically abusive, but you might be making it okay for somebody else to go be, be abusive when they get home by the way in which you carry yourself. Right. So we all have a responsibility, you know, to hold ourselves to a higher standard as it comes to some of these things. And that's what our work is really all about. Um, You know, we do that with young kids the same way we do it with adults. And the adults are even more important because we're the role models. Kids are looking up to us. Right. And so we got to make sure that we're setting the right kind of example so that these young people grow up being young boys and men who value and respect women and girls, but ultimately have good and healthy relationships as well. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like one of the biggest challenges that we see in sport, business, and life is admitting a mistake or failure, and then hold and holding yourself accountable to make change. It's it creates shame. I get that, and it's a shameful event to admit to doing it in front of others. But at the end of the day struggle much like you talked about earlier and what it took to be great at basketball you have to struggle through things to grow through things and as the more we try to deny our errors and mistakes we're not really doing ourselves any favor at all and yes you know at the end of the we're dealing with two two things one is the shame and the other is the judgment of others creating a within their own perfection they kind of castigate you and make it even worse than it really is to more than likely hide their own transgressions and to separate even further instead of inclusion, which is what you talk about, and bringing things to light and helping like a community. Like, yes, you did this, and that's obviously not good, but you're owning up to it. You want help. We have to do something together to make that work. And man, that particular recipe for success is getting fewer and fewer across the world, let alone our country. And I admire the heck out of you for doing this because every day is like one victory is a huge victory. Most people don't like only winning one. They want to be able to help millions. Well, it might take a while for that one to affect 10, but it will. And then that 10 will affect 100. You just you can't get a million right out of the gate, but if you do the right things over and over and over again, one at a time, it's like a, a rock being dripped in, dropped into the ocean. The ripples are going to continue to go no matter what. Well, it's part of the reason why I fell in love with the game of golf, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've fallen in love with it. It's the hardest thing ever, <laughs> and it drives me insane <laughs> that I got paid to put a ball in a hole, but I can't put this little bitty ball in this hole, Right. But what golf has has taught me is that, number one, perfect doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Perfection is not, you're not after perfection. You are after consistency, right? And you have to be honest with yourself that a part of the reason why you scuffed that shot or or, or, or you, you know, hit it fat or whatever the case may be is because you did it wrong. Like you said before, it's just you and the ball. The ball didn't move, right? <laughs> yep. Right? It's, it's 100% user error. 
And you have a responsibility to be self-correct so that it doesn't affect the next shot. But then there's also the emotional intelligence, right? Man, that's powerful. How many times are you on the golf course and somebody hits a bad shot and they start cussing and yelling and all that kind of And then it affects the next shot. And all of a sudden, they got a horrible round of golf, not because they're a horrible golfer, but because they didn't have emotional intelligence, yeah. right? Golf is such a sport, man, that it just it, it teaches you so much, but it's not about perfection. It's about consistency, yeah. right? And, 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 and you, you know, I want to hit on something that you said around shame, right? We all feel shame. When you do something you had no business doing or, or you make a mistake or you do something that's costly, that shame is not a bad thing that you feel. You just can't live there. Man, that's so true. Right? Like, like, like at some point, you got to get up and you got to fix it and you got to figure out how to move forward. And, and most importantly, figure out how do we make that mistake much fewer times until we get to a point where we built up the muscle memory to where it, we don't make that mistake again. Yeah. Right? As a, as a, as a shooter when I was in college, Coach uh, Richardson used to talk to me all the time about making sure that I stay low to the ground when you catch the ball so that you have all of your power and strength going up into your shot. But it was so hard for me because in high school I played center. So as a, as a big, you spend most of your time standing up. Mm-hmm. So now I get to the SEC and it's like, I got to get down here, right? It's hard. But over time, you minimize the number of times that you catch the ball standing up which means you maximize the amount of times you can actually make the shots that you're shooting. Mm-hmm. The same is true in life. As we're coming up against situations that are difficult for us, you know, when, when you shoot that air ball, you feel shame, right? But you can't live there because then that affects the whole game. Yep. So I feel it. That feeling is what, what ultimately makes me want to do something about it so that I don't feel that again. So then I get, I get in there, I watch film. I, I, I get in the gym and I practice it, right? I'm conscious of it. I'm thinking about it all the time. So that the next time I catch this ball, I do it the right way. The same thing is true in life. But we don't talk about it enough. We should be encouraging our brothers to be like, yo, when you, when you get home and you get into this argument with your spouse, right? Arguments happen. The fact that you're having an argument is not a bad thing. You're, you're two different, diverse people, mm-hmm. right? You're not always going to agree on everything. But how you respond to it, if you did something wrong, own it. Yes, you're going to feel the shame of screwing up. But own it, right? And then let's talk about, okay, how can I be better the next time? And then don't let it in there. Go back and process it and think about, okay, next time is going to happen. What am I going to do differently? How can I practice this? Who can I call to get some advice? What did you do when you were in a similar situation? Right? I ask people when I, when I, my wife and I, we go on double dates with people from time to time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and I'll ask the question, how's your marriage going? And people look at me like, why are you asking me this question? <laughs> right? And then, and then typically you'll get a response like, yeah, we've been married for 15, 20, 30 years. And I'm like, I didn't ask you to quantify. I asked you, how is it going? Yeah. Right? We're so uncomfortable talking about relationship that we're not able to build up the practice that's necessary for us to actually get to a place where healthy relationship is what we're experiencing more often. Yeah. We got folks out here that have mastered this. Let's talk about it. 
We got folks that are making mistakes. Let's talk about it. The goal is for us to go home and have a wonderful, healthy experience every single day. It's possible, right? Yep. But we got to be intentional about doing so. Violence is not the answer. Violence is not the option, right? Yelling and screaming and calling people outside of their names, like, that's not it. There's a way to communicate. There's a way to express yourself. And for a lot of guys, because for the history of masculinity, we've shamed men and boys for talking about how they feel. Yep. So when we get in relationship, we definitely don't know how to talk about how we feel. Yep. Right. And so we got to create spaces where we can talk about this stuff so that people can ultimately be better. And then we'd be a better example for the young people who are watching. Yeah. I remember listening to Kobe Bryant talk about conflict and he was very interesting as a person who handled conflict because if there was anything that happened on the court with the Lakers at home with his wife or with his mom or dad, he was like immediately taking care of the conflict right now, get it over as fast as possible. So if he didn't like the way Shaq was getting up and down the court, he was in his face and if he didn't like what was going on at the house, he's like, you, like people make mistakes by sweeping it under the rug. Something, if you have conflict, walk into it now. Don't walk away from it and think you're going to fix it later. And I was like, man, now that's not how I was taught at all. And it really set me back a little bit, like thinking about how everything in my life was about maintaining a fake peace. Mm -hmm. Like to, to not face it whether i was wronged or i did wrong either one just like just let that die and we'll come back to it later and we never come back to it and it just keeps manifesting itself and really that's where you start to create the wrong boundaries because what you what you're willing to accept being done to you is ultimately how you're showing people how to love you or not love you and I was like, man, do I need to hear that again? So, I, so it's YouTube. You can see that Kobe talks about conflict. It's amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, I got to get better at that. But it's really hard, which I love. I think I watched that when I was 31. So I'm 48. I mean, it was 49. The first time I watched that, I was 31. I'm like, man. And I still work hard on it every day because it is hardwired in my DNA that if, if there's a conflict, the first thing I do is, like, close up. Yeah. And it's hard to walk into it. Yeah. But it's the greatest thing that I ever do when I have the, I guess it's courage, to change my behaviors and walk into the conflict. And it's not easy. Yeah. Nobody says that it's easy, but what is valuable in life that is easy, yeah. like nothing. Yeah. There's, there's so much fear that exists. And as adults, we got to be careful the negative stuff that we tell ourselves oh yeah that keeps us from walking into vulnerability and intimacy especially in relationships yeah right like like my wife and i we're in, we're in counseling we we go to counseling monthly not because anything's wrong because we didn't master in relationships that's right that's, neither one of us mastered in that in school right like so we we need somebody to walk us through this to teach us how to communicate in ways that are healthy and helpful um but most importantly to check us right like like i need to be checked on how i'm communicating right because 
it's one thing to communicate. It's another thing for the intention of what you're saying to actually be felt realized and then put into action. Correct. Those are very different things, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's so important and critical. But one of the things that my counselor talked about with me specifically was the negative filter that I allowed to all, all things to go through concerning the person that I love. So what I mean by that is if, if, if there's a difficult conversation that we need to have, right? I will in my own mind go through all the negative possibilities and allow those negative possibilities to keep me from having the conversation that's necessary 100%. at home. Mm-hmm. Right. And in my mind, I've so bought in to these negative scenarios that now I'm fearful, right? As if my wife is some type of monster or something. And she's not, right? But in my head, I've made up this whole story of the negative possibilities. And when I was challenged to lean into it anyway, it took me a long time to actually do it. But then once I started doing it, I realized nothing that I've ever told myself through that negative filter ever materialized. It never actually happens. And that taught me something that was valuable, not even just in relationship, but also in business. When we have subordinates that we need to go have difficult conversations with, when we have supervisors that we need to go have difficult conversations with, the thing that keeps us from having those conversations is the negative filter that we've allowed those thoughts to go through. And we've made up in our mind all the negative scenarios that could come out of that. And so we choose to sit back and not engage. Yep. When the reality is whatever you thought in your mind will never actually materialize. That's not how things actually happen. The more vulnerable we are, the better the intimacy in that relationship is, which further leads to positive outcomes. Absolutely. But that's not what we've been taught. Correct. Because the people before us bought into this fear as well. And it's that fear that keeps us from diving into those situations, which is why we live in a a male-dominated society where 60% of marriages end in divorce. Yep. Fear is a liar. That's what it is. That's right. So true. I think it's interesting. One of the things I, I, I get really, I bang on education a lot because I really think that there's two things that literally are make or break in life that are never taught. One is relationship management and the other is financial management. One to how to, like how to budget how to invest, how to structure yourself around the money that you do make. And what is it what are the actual fundamentals of a human relationship? I'm not sure there are there are anything more important than that. And we don't talk about it at all. It's more important for us to talk about when Hitler invaded Poland, <laughs> right? Or it's more important for us to figure out if a tree's falling in Chicago and a train's leaving St. Louis, how far did it travel to that tree fell? I get the value, but it, it like one in 500 people are going to use calculus. 
one in one are going to have to deal with people. One in one are going to have to learn how to manage their money in their life. It's just, and I, I've probably, this is like podcast 151 for me. And I've, I've railed on our education system in this country, probably in a third of them. Because I just believe that we're, we have, we're here for seven or eight hours a day. And we can't find time to deal with the absolute fundamentals of life. But we can talk about something that one in 500 of us might use. And it's super important. I'm not taking away the importance of chemistry, physics, all the variable math. I get it all. Super important. We wouldn't have gigantic high-rises if we didn't have architecture and um, algebraic math. I get it. But my golly, every single person walking in those gigantic buildings, they got to figure out how to navigate each other, and they got to figure out how to navigate their own personal finances. Yeah. We have, we have made a decision that money and stuff are what's most important. And as a result, we've built a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. We've made a lot of money. Our relationships have always sucked. Mm-hmm. And I'm a firm believer, and this is a lot of the work that I'm doing now, that when we learn how to create synergy amongst people Mm -hmm. and then allow that synergy to impact the business, we see outcomes that we didn't even know were possible. Yep. But we've been doing it backwards and allowed the the little success that we've had to be the benchmark. When we don't even know what was what is actually possible. Correct. If we learned how to do all of this together. Mm-hmm. How to love on people. The one question I ask I ask clients all the time. I ask clients to quantify, give me a number of what it looks like in your company for every single person to operate at their peak performance level. What would, what would be the financial impact to your business if every single person was operating at their peak performance levels? We don't even know how to think like that. Correct. We, we don't. We can't even fathom the possibility of that, and the reason why is because we've never focused our attention on people. When you get people operating at their peak performance levels, whatever that is, the outcomes you see are unexplainable. Yeah. But we've never gotten it. We've done some amazing things, and we've allowed the folks who are exceptional to represent the whole, mm-hmm. which is why you look at nonprofit space, for example. We create stories based on the exceptions, but the majority never experienced that story. Yeah. Think about wealth in our country. We highlight those who are exceptional, while the vast majority don't even have a pathway to that story. Correct. Right, mm-hmm. all because we've not focused on people. When 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 you focus on getting people 
to be the best versions of themselves, it's crazy what can be accomplished. And we're seeing that happen in real time. We're seeing that happen in companies. But there's a gravitational pull towards the way that we've always done things. Mm -hmm. And if you always do what you've always done, you'll continue to get what we've always gotten, which is why those same stories in the Bible continue to repeat themselves. You got that right. Today. Man, no kidding. That's some seriously important stuff for people to hear right there because, you know, Simon Sinek makes, has, is one of the few people that makes it that the people that work for him are his number one priority, not the customer, the people. And you can't help be sucked into that guy talking because he's getting what you're saying. It's like I, it doesn't make a difference like what our, our sales goals are. I know that if every single one of my employees know that I'm here and I'm going to know where they are in their life and I'm willing to do whatever I can to make sure that they're able to function at the highest percentage rate that they can, that all of this stuff takes care of itself. Yep. But we spend all this time trying to get over here, trying to get to the end result, and we're missing the process in the middle. Yep. And it's not so dissimilar to people that go to Duke to win national championships, but they could, they could end up going anywhere to win a national championship if the process is right. You don't have to go to Duke to get a process. Nope. And, but it's, it's hilarious. Like that, that extrapolates outward into, I got to work at Amazon or I got to work at Apple or I got to do this or I got a whole lot of got to's don't really lead anything until you, I got to have the right process and systems to set up for myself and my company for us to achieve the possibilities, I don't even call them results, the possibilities of what we can do. Because we don't even know what they are. And I, and I, I know it's true, and I know it works because I was in, I was in San Francisco about two weeks ago doing um, corporate workshops for a bunch of CEOs. And I had one person pull me to the side, and they said, Shane, I'm, I've lived this. He said, I literally, about five years ago, he said he was running a hotel and he had somebody come up to him um, just randomly in the street. It was a, a Asian lady who had been, and he didn't recognize because it, it had been so long. Mm-hmm. He said he ran up to him. The kids were there. He ran up to him in the middle of the street, gave him a hug. And he's looking like, what the heck? Like, who, who are you? <laughs> right? This is, this, this is weird. Yeah. Right. And he said, the woman started sharing like, Thank you so much. We miss you. We hadn't saw you in a while. Um, but when you were running the hotel was the best time of my life. And she said, you loved us. You cared about us. And our culture was amazing. And you were family. And so now seeing you out here, it just brought back all of those memories. Hmm. Right? It's beautiful. It works. But you got to do it. Right. Yep. You, you, you got to do the work and you got to fight, you know, the the noise that's out there saying that all of this other stuff is so important. The other stuff will happen. If you take care of your people and you make sure every single person has what they need to show up and be their best. Are they going to be outliers? Of course, there's outliers with everything. There's outliers now and, and we're not doing it. That's right. <laughs> right. But by and large, you create teams and atmospheres where people want to come to work, right? Where people know that they're going to be valued, that they can bring their best selves, and they're going to be able to contribute to the overall mission and vision, and they're going to be their best self. 
you you can't pay for that kind of production. No doubt. Right? You you, you just can't. People will run through walls. Right? And that's been proven in so many other areas. People will run through walls when that is the kind of culture. And on top of that, in this space right now that the country is in where there's a huge war on talent, (laughs) everybody's trying to hire people. Right? What happens is when we have that kind of culture, now you become the preferred employer. Now everybody in every community, the top, the best talent everywhere is saying, I want to go work there because that's where I'm going to grow. That's where I'm going to thrive. That's where I'm going to be my best self. And whatever it is, the goals that we have personally, we know that that's an important step to me being able to accomplish our goals. Yeah, it's so true. I always thought like to me, I was, I just had this conversation yesterday with us, uh, a sports reporter and I'm like, you know, college sports are heavily dictated by the best coaches. Professional sports are heavily dictated by the best players. And historically speaking, we really celebrate college coaches. You know, Bear Bryant, Joe Paterno, Nick Saban, Coach K, Roy Williams, Dean Smith, you know, all these great coaches. And you occasionally hear like, oh, yeah, Ralph Sampson was awesome, Michael Jordan was awesome, Patrick Ewing, you know. But you get to the NFL, you hardly hear of anybody else other than Belichick and Lombardi. And you hear Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Roger Staubach, Terry Bradshaw. You hear about all the players. And it's kind of like in that developmental phase before you become a professional, you're being honed by a coach who's teaching you what is the process to become great. And then at the professional level, when you've cut through all the, 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 the wheat and the chafe and you got the best of the best – then the actual elite of the best rise. But you don't really, you can't, it's what's really hard to go from high school to the professional level. I mean, for every Kobe and LeBron and Moses Malone, Hole and Kevin Garnett, there is hundreds of, don't even remember that one. Who's he? Don't remember that. Because that growth period between 18 and 23 where you have all this talent, but you, most of the, I would imagine you could probably say this too, which is when you were at a senior in high school, there probably weren't many people that could stop you. But one day in the SEC, and there were, everybody was generally as good as you. And you had to hone different levels of skill. And that's where you became to appreciate the studying side of the game. Because it's more than just talent when everybody's freaking good. And it's the next level thinking, preparation, strategies, and understanding human weaknesses and strengths. And to me, that you, right, what you're doing is in in a world you're like the, you're the coach, trying to help people navigate this weird time between where they are now and where we'd like everybody to be. And so it's, it's a weird. Uh, synonym, so to speak, or an analogous relationship, but at the end of the day, that's what you're doing. We see a void. Everybody wants to be here, but there's a big void, and it's going to take about five years to change those habits. Because you you admitted it. When you were a senior, you had it down mm-hmm. to a point where it was like the game was so easy because you were over-prepared. Yep. But when you were a freshman, it wasn't that easy. Yep. And I think that's important for people to hear is like, there's nothing that you're going to say to them 
and it's you never have to be told again the next day. I think there's people when they when they pay for services like what you're doing or what I do, they're expecting you to pay only once, and I shouldn't have to get this lesson again. Mm-hmm. But they certainly don't understand human habit. Not at all. Not at all. You you you're hitting on so many good points here um, that are applicable to sport, to business, to life, to relationship. Um, we live in a, a world where we want instant gratification. Yep. That's why the microwave was created. <laughs> we want it right now. Yep. Right? But those things that are of most value, they take time. They take investment. <coughs> Excuse me. They they take intentionality. They take collaboration. Yeah. They take process. And far too often, especially right now, we companies want what is that what is that one one or three things that we can do that'll just fix this? People in marriages. I'm sorry, I gotta get some water. Yeah, back. absolutely. <coughs> but I, I mean at your nail it's in me. There's a lot that goes into immediate gratification. Like uh, I was listening to Elon Musk talk about, you know, we have to change our education system because information is now a commodity. You mm-hmm. can find anything you need in, yeah. in two seconds. Yeah. So let's stop trying to learn how to find information. It's findable. Yeah. Let's learn to apply the information. Absolutely. We spend too much time trying to. We already already have the information. Right. And 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 in some ways. We've overloaded ourselves with information such that we've forgotten that we still need an approach that fits who we are mm-hmm. because we are diverse. Our companies are diverse. Our industries are diverse. And so you can't pick up something that works for Amazon and then go and apply it to Apple. Correct. Right? That. They're different, right? You can't take something that works at Apple and go and apply it to Microsoft. There are some things that are similar, some things that are going to have synergy, but there's going to be other things that are not, and that's okay, right? How many times in, in relationship do you see people doing things in their current relationship because that's what they saw their parents do? When you're not married to your parents, <laughs> yep. right? But but because because of something they said or something you witnessed in them, you've made a decision. I'm going to do it just like that. Or folks who say that you know, I went to private school, so my kids are going to private school. Yeah, but your kid isn't you. Yep. Right. The reality is, we need customized approach that fits who we are. And the best coaches in the world are able to take a group of talent and be able to innately see the value and the weaknesses and come up with a strategy that allows whatever their potential is to be reached. Yeah. That, is the, that is the measure of success. Our ability to reach potential. Not whatever forecasted numbers come up Right. 
but how, how can we reach our potential in relationship? How can we reach our potential? Right? Mm. Understanding that what works for my friend and what works for the pastor and what works for mom and dad may not work for us. We can take some things from it and learn some lessons, but what's going to help us reach our potential, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. But we got to work at it. Right? And the microwave approach doesn't work. You got to spend time. You got to invest. You got to get to know. Right? The same is true on the court. Same is true in business. Same is true in relationship. So true. Kind of when you told me that, that told the story of Apple and Amazon, it's kind of like how in the world we live in today, using sport as an example, is especially in football, like how many, how many of Alabama's assistant coaches get hired to bring the Alabama culture to their school, and it never works. I mean, take away one Kirby Smart a national championship for Georgia and one Jimbo Fisher for Florida State. Generally speaking, the draw from Nick Saban's assistant pile has been a cataclysmic failure <laughs> because they're, you can't relate one place to another. It's not just the coaching. It's there's a different culture in Knoxville than there is in Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. a different culture in Starkville than there is in Tuscaloosa or in Baton Rouge or Oxford or wherever. Mm-hmm. But when they try to force Tuscaloosa and slam it into Baton Rouge or slam it into University of Kentucky, generally it doesn't work. Just like trying to slam this the CFO of Apple into you know, Amazon and forcing Apple's way into Amazon's culture just because Apple had two great years under this guy. He's got to be, and it's not the same. There has to be more vetting than just looking across the street and the grass is greener on the other side. Well, that, that goes back to what you were talking about when we first started. And that is our inability to be honest about our inequality. In inadequacies mm-hmm. so right? true we, we we're not as great as picky at picking out talent as we give ourselves credit for <laughs> yep. and as a result what we do to overcompensate is we lean on other places that people have been other experiences that they've gotten to give credibility to the decision that we made mm-hmm so we'll say, this is a great hire because they were there when this happened. When that has nothing to do with what you're trying to do here. That's right. has nothing to do with the team that you're trying to take this and put it into. Right? Yep. Which, and, and, and in our work, for example, we, we, we come in and we'll ask questions around, you know, what, what constitutes a good fit for your company? Very few CEOs can answer that question. Most of the time, it's something that includes bias. I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for a long time, so I know what it takes to be successful. And then when you ask the the follow-up question, well, how much diversity have you seen in this area over your history of being here? Very little. So the assumption is that a good fit looks just like you. Is that the only mm-hmm. good fit? Is that what produces the best outcome? 
Or is that solely based on your experience? And all that you've been exposed to may not be all that there actually is. So true. Right? But that's that's a difficult conversation. But it's an honest one. Yep. Right? I've been all over the world. I've seen companies, industries. I've, I've seen it all. But there are things that I've still not seen yet. There are experiences that I've not had. I'm 35 years old. Yep. Right? There, there, there are great people who I've not got the pleasure of meeting. There are great books and strategies that I've not been exposed to yet. Right? That's why I'm a lifelong learner. And it's okay to say, you know what? I don't know. Let's measure it. Yep. Let's research it. Let's figure it out. Right? But we got to add a level of integrity to the things that we're doing, especially when it comes to hiring. Right? Correct. 100%. You know, knowing as a person who's written three books, and all of them were passions of mine, I'm interested in, in your book, What Hurt Didn't Hinder. What was the passion that spurred that book on? And what does it mean to you after it was written? I started writing that book when I was ending my basketball career. And I had come to the realization that my career was not about me getting to the NBA. It wasn't about me playing ball all over the world. But it was about the lessons that I learned along the way. And I wanted to share those lessons. Mm. As I got into the book and started writing it and started interviewing family and friends and kind of hearing their perspective of different times in my life and career, the book turned into something I didn't expect it to. And that is talking about the deconstruction of manhood, masculinity, and the rebuilding of a mindset that was applicable to any given situation and circumstance. I started to realize that there was so much about my childhood and life that I had just never talked about, but that I could see the impact that it was having in my life and relationships. Mm and things I was trying to accomplish. And the more and more I learned about domestic violence and sexual assault and rape and this culture that allows that kind of thing to happen, the more I realized how much good, well-meaning people play a role in this culture unknowingly. Hmm. And I wanted people to know and understand that just because you've gone through difficult things, just because you went through trauma, just because it's traumatic to talk about it, you don't have to allow it to define your future. Mm -hmm. Just because you saw domestic violence at home doesn't mean your marriage has to end in divorce due to domestic violence. Just because your father wasn't there for you doesn't mean you got to overdo it for your kids. 
Correct. and create the same imbalance, you're just physically there. Just just because, you know, you you saw yelling and screaming at home and unhealthy relationship doesn't mean that your relationship has to look the same. You know, mm-hmm. you can't allow what happened to you to define you. Thus, the title, what hurt didn't hinder. Mm-hmm. I've gone through a lot of hurt. I've spent some nights on the floor crying, screaming. My wife has had to console me. I have some tough moments. But you get up, you learn from them, you take what you can apply to your life, and you figure out what your purpose and passion is on this earth, and you pursue it, and you don't allow what happened to define you. Yeah. I see, I've just seen so many people who get stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my pastor preached a sermon one time about getting stuck in Lodabar. And Lodabar was this, this horrible place after children of Israel were taken captive. They were taken to Lodabar. And children of Israel, they hung up their harps. Even though they had been playing these harps and that was their instrument of worship and it gave them so much strength and power, when they got the loader bar, they hung up, hung up their harps and they wouldn't play. In other words, they, they gave up who they were because of the circumstance that they were in. Wow. A lot of people, when they go through things, they, they end up losing a business or losing a job. They lose their family. They are in domestic violence situation. They've gone through child abuse or they've been raped. They've been... Um, sexually assaulted, they've, they've been, you know, whatever that thing is, you can't stay there. Yep. Right? You got to reinvent yourself. You got to hold on to who you are. And oftentimes, it's the very things that you go through that give you the fuel, the energy, the capacity to accomplish things that you didn't even think you could. But you'll never accomplish it if you stay there. You got to get out of Little Bar. Yep. Right? That may be where you are today. But if you got a scratch, if you got a claw, if you got the run, if you got the whatever it takes, you got to get out of there. For you, for your family, for your legacy, for everybody that's coming after you, you got to get out of there and not allow what hurt to hinder. And the same is true in business. Right? We're in this place right now where we're starting to realize all the sins of the past that are impacting business today and how there's very little access for diverse communities when it comes to wealth, when it comes to higher up positions and C-suites and boards and all this stuff. And we're starting to kind of try to figure that thing out. But it's hard and it's difficult because there's some conversations that we, we really don't want to have. There's some things that that we really don't want to give up. Mm -hmm. But we can't allow what hurts to hinder where we're going. There's possibility on the other side of having these difficult conversations, putting policy in place, having a strategy for how we handle these things in the workplace. But we got to get up out of the place that we are in currently. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. Final question. Well, I actually got two questions left. 
probably the most popular part of my podcast and the one that I get the most amount of feedback from is on perseverance. And everybody struggles. Everybody has difficult times. But it's, it's those abilities to overcome them that steals your resolve that you can handle everything that comes your way. What's that one, that one thing that happened in your life that shook you to the core and you weren't quite sure you were going to make it through, but once you did, it steeled your resolve to know you could handle anything? Hmm. I would say when... When my first wife and I got divorced, this was somebody who I trusted, had built a long-term relationship with, Mm -hmm. um, had really invested in that relationship, and was emotionally really, really invested. My whole family really, really invested, and... I never in a million years thought that I would be 22 years old and divorced. Hmm. And I had grown up in church and, you know, you, you, you remember the scriptures about God hating divorce and um, all of this stuff, right? And I found myself at that moment, I'll never forget, I was in, I was in Belgium and I was looking in the mirror the elevator now in a, in a condo had a mirror in it and I got in that mirror and I just broke down crying because I didn't recognize the person I saw. Hmm. I would have I would have never guessed that I would be in that place. I went through depression. That same year, my grandmother got killed in a car accident by a drunk driver, 18-wheeler. Oof. Um, and here I am in another country. That was a very difficult time in my life. And what I had to come to the realization of, because I spent some time in denial, spent some time just wallowing in that place, misery loves company. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to admit that while I blamed her for a lot, a lot of it was on me. A lot of it was because I was emotionally unavailable. A lot of it is because I wasn't as mature as I should have been at that time in my life. A lot of it was me being selfish not being the man that I was supposed to be and needed to be and wanted to be even. Mm -hmm. And I had to be honest with myself that you can be who you want to be, but it's going to take you doing things drastically different. And, And it took some time to build myself up from that. And I'm so grateful for the friends in my life, um, for my father um, who was a phenomenal role model for me, for my mother, and the vulnerable conversations that we were able to have to to get me out of that place. Um, <laughs> you, you, you just never think that you end up there. Yeah. 
that was the same year I got inducted into the Vanderbilt Hall of Fame. Wow. I had just gotten drafted to the NBA. Was playing ball, making money across the across uh the water and doing all these all these things, right? Like accomplishing all the goals. From the outside looking in, I was living this perfect life. And that hurt. It hurt to feel like I was failing. Mm-hmm. How is it possible that I can have all this outward success and inward failure? And I will never forget as long as I live being in that elevator. And when I finished crying and picked myself up, I looked in that same mirror and I heard God saying to me that, I'm going to give you another chance. This is not it for you. And in a short while after going through that divorce, I met my current wife. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I remember telling her that I'm going to treat you right because I don't deserve you. So every day, that's, that's my goal, to treat her the way that I don't deserve her. I love that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story because that's... I can tell, man, that's, that was a really rough, rough moment that you ended up being where you are today. Yeah. Interesting. Now, this is the final question. One of my favorite people on social media, his name is Jason Silva, and he's heavily involved in the Flow Research Collective and human performance, but he's very spiritual, and he's, he looked into his phone, and he said, uh, every human experiences three deaths. The day that you find out that you're going to die, the day that you die, and your final death is the last time somebody ever mentions your name. Then he looks, he puts the phone real close to his face. He says, what are you doing to extend that third life? Hmm. And it really made me think about how I live my life, what I do about my life, how I act and behold to others. And that one one minute and 15 second clip that he put out which did a huge 180 for me when you think about that third life what are you trying to do to extend that moment in time wow um i've been so blessed after i got out of that really difficult space i got really intentional about finding my purpose and the work that we're doing around ending domestic violence is impacting people all over the world my wife had me sit down when we first moved back to Nashville and to create a vision board and it was seven-year vision board. And I said, in seven years, I want to travel the country making a difference, impacting people's life. I didn't know what that was going to look like, how it was going to look, how it was going to manifest, but that was the goal. And I started moving in that direction. I helped to start a charter school here in Nashville, helped build up the program of Men Together that will live beyond me. Um, and now I've started the consulting firm helping companies with diversity, equity, and inclusion, reconnecting our heads with our hearts, Mm -hmm. 
and the work that I'm doing in those spaces and have done will outlive me. Yeah. And I get a chance every single day beyond any shadow of a doubt to do things that I know matter. And so every, I would say everything that I'm doing in my life right now is about extending that third life. Well, that's awesome. Well, Shane, I can't thank you enough for sharing your amazing story. Um, obviously, this is the first time I've ever met you. I've watched you play on the court, but not kind of had a chance to meet you. I love what it is that you're doing. Thank you. Uh, I pray that it ends up doing everything and more, and I believe that it will because I know that your heart and your mind and your processes are aligned in the right order. So I wish you the best of luck. And, uh, man, what a, what a great story. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, man. That was amazing. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.